You know, one of the uh, most reassuring aspects of God's sovereignty and his sovereign rule over the universe, which means basically God is in total control of everything, is his ability to bring good results out of bad circumstances. I mean, that is so reassuring to me, and it's especially true when his people undergo persecution. You know, in our study of the book of Romans, we were told that, you know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord are not called according to His purposes. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. You know, and God through His Word, the Bible, reminds us of many such incidents. You know, for example, sold into slavery in Egypt by his jealous brothers, Joseph rose to prominence in Potiphar's and Pharaoh's court. And in that exalted position, he was able to provide for his father and for his brothers during the ensuing famine. In Genesis 45, verses 5 through 8, we're told this. And now, Joseph speaking to his brothers, he says, And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still yet five in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. It says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt." In verse 20, he goes on in chapter 50 and says, And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. As for you, let's not mistake, you know, don't be taking credit for the fact that I am where I am today because your intentions were evil, but I just want to tell you that what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And the reason that he did this was in order to bring about this present result to preserve many alive. What you meant for evil, God turned into something good. God used Joseph to preserve the ancestors of the nation of Israel through the evil deeds of jealous brothers. God's will prevailed, and it will continue to prevail through all evil. You know, Israel's rebellion against God led to her captivity in the hands of many godless nations. And yet through those times of captivity came such shining lights as Daniel. If you think about Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. They came shining forth during times of total darkness. Out of the most evil actions and intentions, God causes good to come forth. I often hear the question asked recently, what good can come out of such evil? as has been displayed in the terrorist attacks of September 11th and subsequent events that have occurred since then. What good can really come out of such evil? Now, while we wait to see all that will arise from it, we can have confidence in God who causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. And the question is, well, how can we be certain of that? I want you to consider the most heinous crime that ever took place on the face of the earth. The most heinous crime. Some of you are thinking, what could it be? The most heinous crime was that when man murdered the innocent son of God. 
the most heinous crime ever committed on the face of the earth was the murder of God's innocent son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet from that heinous act, God has brought forth salvation to those who believe. He's turned the most evil intention of man into the precious, precious salvation that's offered to those who believe. You know, remember when we were in Acts chapter 2, Peter said, Men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. We've seen throughout our study in the book of Acts in chapters 4, 5, 7, 8, 12, the persecution of the early church. And in every case, what was meant for evil to snuff out and stamp out God's proclamation to the world that God loves people and has provided a remedy for sin in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every, every persecution that we see that was to stamp out that message backfired and all that it did was flame, uh, spread the flames of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're told that it's been said that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And that every time persecution stepped up its, its evil intentions, God said, watch me turn this into good because you can't stop me. And as we look at all of that, every case it said that those who received the message that a large number believed turning to the Lord. Isn't that wonderful to know? That every time, time in and time out, the evil intentions of man is always turned into good by God. And uh, all this leads us to the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, turn there with me. It records yet another illustration of this particular truth that we can't get around, and that is this. It, another illustration of God's turning evil into good. God's turning evil into good. You know, this section moves, if you recall from the last time we were together, it moves uh, into the results of Paul's miraculous deliverance of a demon-possessed girl. Uh, Paul's ministry made its first beachhead here in the city of Philippi, which was a Roman colony. It was a very strategic location. Uh, he set up camp, so to speak, or set up a place of operation. And from this particular area, he would then go out and attack Europe, so to speak, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this particular case, he shared the gospel with a group of women that were assembled by a riverside. These women had come to faith in Christ, Lydia and her household. They had become... Uh, they, had become they were born again of God. They became children of God to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And from this group of people, the Philippian church was now born. And so when we read the letter to the Philippians, we're reading about what has taken place here in Acts chapter 16. This is the birth of the church at Philippi. And from here, no sooner are lost people saved than Satan begins to hinder the work. And we've seen it all through the book of Acts. Either he's going to hinder it from within or he's going to hinder it from outside the church. From within, we saw it in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, who were liars in the midst of the leadership position of church, and God rooted them out, exposed them for who they really were. We see the persecution that would take place from the outside. In this particular case, a demon-possessed girl who was running around telling everybody, these are the servants of the Most High God, they're proclaiming the way of salvation, and it was confusing people, identifying the gospel with Satan and demonic, uh, a demonically possessed woman. So there was confusion there, and there had to be 
be a separation between the two. But no sooner are lost people saved than you can just bet on the fact that Satan will begin to work. And it happens on a regular basis. From this passage, we have insight as to how, as God's people, we can focus on turning evil into good. And that's what we're going to take a look at. We'll start with verse 19. It says, But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city in confusion, being Jews, and are, not, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. You know, from this particular, we're going to take a look sequentially at five things that take place. Number one, we see that there's persecution. The word but helps us understand. Look in verse 19, and we're introduced to this particular uh, section with the word but, again indicating a strong contrast. It helps us understand the the contrasting scenes that are before us. Think about it for a moment. Think about the fact that just a moment ago, there was a deliverance of this young woman from the oppression of evil. She was oppressed, she was demon-possessed and oppressed by evil, and God delivered her from such oppression. Consider the joy of her life in being freed up from such bondage. Consider the joy of her parents, for example, who now have received their daughter back whole. Consider the the joy of her friends and of her family. Consider the joy of the women who had just come to faith in Christ as they see God doing another miracle, not only the miracle in their own hearts, but the miracle that was seen and demonstrated so clearly before them. Consider the joy that was taking place as the apostles seeing God deliver yet one more person were praising God for everything that was going on. You think everybody would have been so excited about the deliverance of this young lady. And yet we're told, but. But there's another story. There's another side of it. It's like the bookie whose customer gives up gambling. Or the bartender, bar owner, whose customer gives up booze. Or the drug dealer whose customer gives up drugs. Or the pimp whose prostitute gives up turning tricks. But there's always another side of it. There's not always joy when God's doing his thing. There's another side of it. And the evil intentions of men are exposed here. The owners of the young girl were enraged at her deliverance. Why? Because we're told that they saw that their hope for profits were gone. Profits are gone. We can't make any money. Their reaction reveals the inhumane cruelty of the institution of slavery. Instead of rejoicing in her deliverance, they were enraged. You know, the Bible has much to say about the conflict between money and ministry. And it appears often. In fact, Jesus warned that where our treasure is, there will be our heart also. He also tells us very clearly that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and serve money. You will love one and hate the other, but you can't serve them both. And he warns us very clearly, Timothy, 
later, uh, as, as Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, those who want to get rich in 1 Timothy 6 fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. He goes on and says that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and that some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And these men loved money. And the evil that is demonstrated is that they loved money more than they loved the freedom that this young lady now enjoyed. They used her for their own benefit. Paul and Silas were in trouble because they had exercised the girl's owner's source of income. See, whenever you know, the preaching of the gospel touches economic structure or the powers that be, opposition is bound to come. You know, let's not be naive about it. And in fact, Richard Collier, who was a historian who wrote about the Salvation Army, wrote this. He said, persecution was great from the beginning. Gangs frequently hurled mud and stones through the windows at the preaching and the crowd. The liquor dealers worked hard to have Booth kicked out of East London. The police were no help. In fact, they often broke up outdoor meetings and accused Booth's followers of being the cause of all the trouble. Wow, that sounds familiar. See, beatings were not uncommon. In 1889, at least 669 Salvation Army members were assaulted. Some were killed and many were maimed. Even their children were not immune as ruffians threw lime in the eyes of a child of a Salvation Army member. The newspapers ridiculed Booth. Punch referred to him as Field Marshal Van Booth. You know, and it's no different today. See, sin is a huge business. Sin is a big money maker. And those who live in such darkness hate the light of God's word. Think about it. Drunkenness and drug abuse and abortion and drugs that are sold to combat sexually transmitted diseases that are caused by all forms of sexual immorality. Pornography and gambling involves billions and billions of dollars. Riches that are generated at the expense and the misery of those who have bought into the lie that there are no consequences for sin. We often hear sin as promoted as a diversion or logical. We hear people try to argue that since young people are going to have sex outside of marriage then it lets at least provide contraceptives for them. It's logical. It's illogical to preach abstinence. It's logical that we will sin, so let's try to do it as wisely as we can. Plus, we don't want to preach abstinence because if people abstain, then they probably won't need what? organizations that exist to perpetuate the misery of those who are stuck in the bondage of sin. We won't be able to give out condoms, therefore we can't manufacture them. If we can't manufacture them and give them out and sell them, then no one will buy them. And therefore what happens? Oh, our profit's gone. If people aren't guilty of sexual immorality, then guess what? We can't produce drugs that are used to somehow or another combat the consequences of sexual sin, and therefore our profit's gone. See, on, on and on it goes. Then we hear things like, you know, places like Las Vegas that advertise as family entertainment destinations. Family entertainment destinations. Well, we don't go to gamble, we just go because the rooms are cheap. Or we get our rooms comped. Really? At whose expense? 
at the expense of those who are gambling away their wages and losing that which they've worked for, all trying to make a big kill or the big score because those who love money will fall into all kind of snares and destruction. Ask the spouse or the family of an alcoholic what the entertainment value is. Drink responsibly. Have a designated driver, but keep drinking. Ask the spouse or family of a drug addict the entertainment value of their misery. Ask the spouse or family of a person who has gotten addicted to pornography over the internet or some other form the entertainment value of such misery. There was actually a news, uh, a, a news spot the other night how the pornography business is booming right now because everyone's looking for a diversion to all the problems in our world today. They can't make movies fast enough, produce new titles quickly enough because there's such a demand. And all that that misery does is compound the misery they already have. It's oppression, it's bondage, it's a lie from the pit of hell. Ask the wife or the, the, the family of the, the man who's addicted to pornography how entertaining it is in their family. Or the person who's dying of cigarette-induced lung cancer or emphysema. I wish I could have had every person that I know come and sit at the hospital bedside of a man who not long ago, praise God, gave his life to Jesus Christ, but lay in a hospital bed dying of lung cancer from years of cigarette smoking. And as every day that I would go on to visit him and the cloud would grow even dimmer on his lungs, you knew that it was inevitable that a short period of time that he would be leaving this life and entering the next. And you ask his wife and you ask his children the entertainment value of the tobacco industry that continues to promote it as being, hey, you know what, we're all adults, make your own choices. But we've had to come up with laws to legislate and regulate it so they don't, they don't target children as their next demographics. The point is this, and I hope that you don't miss this. Nobody loves you like God. Nobody. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And yet while we were sinners and we were running from God, he sought us out. God loves us and demonstrated his love. And yet while we were rebelling against him, he sought us out. He sent his son to seek and to save that which was lost. Nobody loves you like God. To everyone else, you and I are just another customer to make a buck. Don't ever lose sight of that. Nobody loves you like God. These people were enraged because their means of making a profit were gone. Later, we're told in the city of Ephesus, the idol makers were enraged because Paul said, you don't have to worship idols. I'm going to introduce you to the God of all gods. You don't need to buy your little stupid trinkets. You don't have to buy that stuff anymore. You don't have to set them up in your yard. You don't have to set them up in your house. You don't have to worship those things at all because I am going to introduce you to the one and the only true God. When those people were freed from the oppression of buying their little medals and their trinkets and their little statues and all that went with it, the idol makers were enraged at them. Why? Because they just shut their business down. 
They shut it down. And they were enraged because their prophet was gone. See, Paul had touched the profiteers' hearts. The only problem was their hearts were in their wallets. So what did they do? They came up with false charges. Notice this. When they saw that their hope of profit was gone, look what they did. They seized them. They grabbed them. They jerked them and dragged them. And it says they dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. Why? What did they have done? <laughs> they had just been used by God to free a woman from the oppression of Satan himself. Wow, what a terrible crime. But do you ever notice the parallels today? Why are people thrown in prison all around the world for the terrible crime of saying you could be freed from your sins through faith in Christ? What a terrible crime. Wow, isn't that amazing? A terrible crime. But we have all industries that we promote regularly, advertise very boldly and blatantly that are designed to do nothing but destroy the lives of people who buy into the lie that there are no consequences for sin. See, God's ways aren't man's ways. God's thoughts are so high above ours, His way is not even close to ours, that we're bombarded with a message that is exact opposition to everything of God, and the only clarity that we have, thank God, is through His Word. They dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities, and notice in verse 20, and when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, notice what they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion. Notice what they did, though. They didn't say because of the message. They didn't say, wow, they're delivering demon demons out of possessed people. They're freeing people up. You know what they said? Hey, you know what their problem is? They're Jews. They're Jews. Forget about their message. Forget about what they're doing. Forget about all the benefits that you see. Forget about the good stuff that's coming out of the message you're proclaiming. Hey, you know what? They're Jews. That's the problem. Forget about what a, a Christian says because they're one of those born-agains. They're one of those fanatical people. Don't, don't, don't evaluate their message. Don't evaluate what they're doing. Don't stop and think about what's happening. Don't listen to them. Why? Because they're fanatical, born-again Christians. They're crazy people. But what about the message? I, that's not the issue. They're crazy. They're Jews. We can't listen to a thing that they say. And on the other side of it, don't forget, we're Romans. They're Jews, we're Romans. Separate that way. Somehow or another, water the message down by saying, hey, let's, let's try to break it up. So notice what they did. They, were, they called out the lictors. And the lictors were people that were, were on staff, so to speak, that just beat people up. How was your day today, honey? Well, not too bad. Beat up eight guys. Good, good deal. Hey, if I get to 10 before the end of the month, my, my override kicks in. I get a little bonus on that, you know, a little commission. You know, so I'm really hoping they drag a couple more people in. And the word, this is a Latin phrase, but the word, have you ever heard, you know what, getting in your good licks? That's where it comes from. You know, just getting a couple good shots in yourself, a couple good licks. They beat them. They tore off their clothes and they beat them. And you look at that and you go, wow, you know what, we wonder how could any good come out of that? Now, what's interesting is I got to believe that as Paul was getting dragged into the city to get beaten, there were probably times where he remembered doing the same thing. To others earlier in his life. Wow, this is what I did to people. Man, this is unbelievable. See, it seems hopeless until we remember that, you know what? God specializes in turning evil into good. 
You think about it. It seems hopeless. Slavery, racism, genderism, uh, all of these things that we see here, persecution, false imprisonment, physical abuse. It all seems hopeless until we remember that, you know what? God specializes in turning evil into good. Notice in verses 25 through 29 what we read here. It says, but, notice that. As we look at this, the progression that's here. And the crowd rose up together, chief magistrates, verse 22, tore their robes off, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. It says, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanded the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. They were being treated as the worst offenders that you could ever imagine in Ro- under Roman authority. They were beaten. They were put into stocks. They were thrown in the inner compartments of the prison. They were considered the most dangerous of dangerous. This was a maximum security effort to make sure these people didn't get out and continue to promote the message that they were promoting. Think about that. I mean, this was a heinous crime. And yet, notice what we find in verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God... The prisoners were listening to them. It says, and suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourselves for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Isn't it great? I find it no coincidence that the magistrates considered Paul and Silas to be the most dangerous people in their world. Think about it. Understand this. To those who love evil, God's people are always the most dangerous people in the world. Because to those who are lo- that love sin, to those who live in darkness... Anyone who proclaims a message that exposes sin for what it really is are considered the most dangerous people in all of the world. What I just shared about the entertainment industry is a dangerous message that no one wants to hear when you make a profit at the misery of others. You certainly don't want to tell people, you know what, hey, don't gamble. Don't, don't encourage drunkenness. Don't encourage sexual immorality. Don't encourage, you know, all of these things that we're discussing. Because all that it does is going to make your life even more miserable than it is. You know, we don't want to hear that. They were most dangerous. And we are most dangerous. Telling others that there's freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ is the most dangerous message that could be shared to a world that doesn't want people freed from their misery. These people profited from that girl's misery. They didn't want her freed from sin and oppression. They wanted to use her. That's the way of Satan. The prince of this earth. That's the way of the world. Use people. Abuse people for your own benefit. But in verse 25, again, we see a contrast, which I love. Think about this roller coaster ride we're on. There's joy in the deliverance of this woman. And now there's this whole persecution that takes place. And now what do we find here in verse 25? There's joy again. There's praise. How do you turn e- evil into good? Praise. Notice what they were doing. They were praying and they were praising God. 
Hatred, anger, abuse, injustice, racism are now contrasted to the behavior of Paul and Silas. And far from being filled with self-pity or seeking revenge, the Bible says that they were what? Praising God. They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And notice what a testimony that they had on the people that were with them, the prisoners that were there. They were listening to what they were saying. They were listening to what they were singing. They were listening to even their prayers, which I'm sure they prayed out loud for the benefit of those around them that they could hear the relationship they had with God. Praying, praising God. And, you know, and, and from that response, we learn much about turning evil into good. Put yourself into their place. They were beaten unjustly. They're dragged into prison. They're thrown into the most innermost chambers, the darkest place of this dank, dirty, rotten prison. They're put into stocks, which they were laid down, and they would spread their legs as wide as they could spread them, and they would put stocks in, and then they would throw them on their back, which they'd just beaten with rods. And this is the most miserable of circumstances that you could ever find yourself in. And you know what they did? They prayed and praised God. Wow, can we learn a lot about turning evil into good. They praised God. They were singing. Have you ever tried to sing with a frown on your face? Now, the guys that are up here know that some of you specialize in it. But I'm just telling you right now, I don't know how anybody can sing. I mean, you just drive down the road and you watch people singing to their, their, to their radio or whatever. It's like they're... It's like, you know, they're just like the big old smile on their face, right? How can you sing praises to God and not smile through the process? And think about what impact it had on people that were in that prison listening to what was going on or the prisoners that they were chained, or the uh, prison guards they were chained to watching this going, you people were whacked. You just got beat. You didn't do anything wrong. You got dragged and thrown in prison. You got thrown on your bloody backs. You got put in these stocks. Your legs are spread eagle. This is the most miserable, awkward thing. Little rats and stuff are crawling on your faces all over you. And you're praising God. Talk about turning, you know, evil into good. They were singing praises to God. Now, how could these men praise God, sing his praises under such conditions when most people that I know, including myself often in life, go, but God, I'm doing the right thing. Why aren't better things happening to me? You called us here to preach the gospel. We did. You delivered the, the, the demon from the woman. We didn't even do it. We just said in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'll be freed and she was freed. We didn't even have any ability to do that ourselves. You did that. You called us. We preached the word. We get beaten. We get thrown in prison. You know, I don't understand. Think of Joseph in Potiphar's prison. Wait a minute. I didn't have sex with the guy's wife. And I'm thrown into prison. That doesn't make sense. Why am I, when I'm doing the right thing, why do I feel like, you know, bad stuff's happening to me? Because God's ways aren't our ways. Because God specializes in turning evil into good. Perhaps you've been through your own experience of injustice or victim of racism and gender discrimination and, you know, religious persecution. Or you've got a medical diagnosis that just isn't fair. It's just not right. Or some financial reversal or an unfaithful spouse or a rebellious child. And you find it difficult, if not impossible, to praise God. How did they do it? You know how they did it? Listen carefully. This will change your life. They understood what many Christians seem to forget. Praising God 
does not depend on our circumstances. Praising God does not depend on our circumstances. Paul wrote to the Philippians. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to man, for the Lord is near. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in Christ and not your circumstances. Rejoice in Him. Paul knew what it was to experience affliction so severe that he was burdened excessively, that he was burdened to the despair of even his own life. But we can rejoice in Christ because we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. We can rejoice in Him and not in our circumstances. No, no one ever said we're supposed to rejoice in the misery of our circumstances. Paul didn't sit around going, wow, isn't this great? Look, we're all beaten up, we're in stocks, we're t- you know, we got rats crawling across us, and isn't this like a great place to be? He didn't rejoice in that, he rejoiced in Christ. And he understood. He says, therefore, to the church at Corinth, he says, don't lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Don't get hung up on the current and now. Don't ever forget God's in total control. And don't forget whatever affliction you're going through is temporary with the backdrop of eternity. It's a, it's a little blip on the scale. You won't even see it. It's, it's, a, it's a grain of sand in all the sands of the world. It is nothing in comparison to eternity. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote, he said, it's my, my grace, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what Paul said to the Philippian church was the secret of his contentment? I have learned the secret of contentment. I have learned that God's in everything whenever things are going great. I learned God is in everything when things are going in the category of what I would call not so great. I have learned whenever I am fed to praise God for that. I have learned that when I'm hungry to praise God for that because it gives me an opportunity to see when God provides that God hasn't forgotten me. I have learned in every circumstance to praise God. He said, and you know what the secret of his contentment was? He said that I have learned this that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what I've learned. He rejoiced in Christ and not his circumstances. See, so much of today has to do with us. We hear taught, we hear hear proclaimed, you know, us, man-centered. How do you feel about it? Is this fair to you? You know, what do you think of these circumstances? And all I got to say to you is this. You know what? Who cares? Who really cares? Because the universe is God-centered. The problem that we have when we go through difficulties is that we're interpreting in light of how we feel about it instead of seeing God in it. See God in it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were about to be thrown into the the fiery furnace. (laughs) They they saw God's hand in it and said, Listen, we're not going to worship your stupid idol. But if you decide to throw us into the furnace, God can deliver us if he chooses or he may not deliver us. It doesn't really matter, but we see God's hand in this. 
So whatever he decides to do, whether he delivers us or whether he, at this point, delivers us from this life to the next, it doesn't really matter because, you know what, God's in control. Whatever happens, we're still not going to worship your idol. Job said the same thing. Hey, you know what, it really doesn't matter what happens in my life. God could choose to kill me, but I'm still going to trust him. How about you? Are you in the midst of one of those circumstances? And instead of, you know, praising and praying and praising and singing the praises of God, you're dwelling on your circumstances instead of on the Savior who can deliver you. See, Paul and Silas, they had no reason to believe that they would be delivered. James was beheaded. Peter was delivered. But Stephen wasn't delivered. They didn't know what God was going to do. It wasn't like they were laying there going, okay, God, you're going to free us from this. They did not know. And yet, in the midst of all of it, they had peace. They had joy. They felt the presence of God in their life. And notice what happened. It didn't take God long to intervene. And suddenly there came a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened. <clears throat> notice this. With everyone's chains unfastened. Now when the jailer had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Notice this. Man, there's a huge earthquake. Every, all the doors are thrown open. All the locks fall off of all their shackles. They're, they're free. They're ready to go. And you know what's amazing is the prisoner, the prison guard who lived in the house next door came running over, saw what happened, saw all the doors open and assumed one thing. Everyone's gone. Because I know that if the doors were sprung open for me, I'd be out of here. So they came, he came in and he was about to kill himself. Now think of this. Paul and Silas could have said, hey, good. Fall on it, buddy. You know, right back at you. We saw how you treat us. You dragged us in here by our hair. You kicked us a couple times. You threw us in the darkest place of the prison. You know what? Fall on it and don't miss. That's how many of us would, would think. But he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, no, no. Vengeance is God. Hey, listen. Don't fall on it. Don't do that. I was kind of, what? Everyone's still here. Why? Why was everyone still there? Well, the Bible tells us. They were listening to the prayers and the praises and the singing of Paul and Silas. The same word is used of Lydia. She was listening. Remember we talked about how some people don't listen because they don't want to hear. They were listening. They were so drawn and curious by this, these men who were beaten for no reason and unjustly imprisoned. They were listening to what they had to say. They had tremendous influence. And Paul and Silas said, you know what? Hey, hang around. We're not done talking about this yet. They were all still there. And the guy's like, well, I'm going to kill myself. Well, you don't have to. Nobody escaped. You're not going to be in trouble. Everyone's still here. And in fact, anything, you'll probably get a medal because you did such a great job. You kept all the prisoners here when all the doors were open and their, and their chains were gone. And he's like, man. And notice what happened. Look at this. God specializes in turning evil into good. And we're about to see the greatest example that could ever take place in anyone's life. This man in verse 29 and in verse 30, notice what he does. He says, the greatest question that anyone can ask, what must I do to be saved? And Paul took advantage of it by preaching the word of God. Notice that, what he said. He says, and after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, see, some have interpreted it saying, well, it's because he was afraid that he was in trouble because the prisoners escaped. They didn't escape. Well, how did he know the question, what must I do to be saved? Because, man, I'll tell you what, the proclamation of the gospel, people were hearing it. They heard it. They heard the demon-possessed woman saying, hey, this, these men are, are servants of the Most High God. They are telling and proclaiming you the way of salvation. 
this dramatic earthquake and everything that had just taken place was a, a supreme divine uh, act on God's part to affirm that they were God's messengers and what they had to say you better listen up and pay attention to. And so it was natural for him to say, what do I got to do to be right with God? What must I do to be saved? Now notice what he says, and this is so critical for every one of us. Very simply, he said, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. There was no to-do list. There was no give up this or that list. There was no get plugged into this denomination or that denomination or this religious organization. There was none of that. The response of the jailer was, what must I do to be saved or right with God? And Paul said very simply and rightly so, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The problem is most of us don't know what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It means two things. You believe his claim. What is his claim? His claim that he is the savior of the world. What is his claim? His claim is that he is Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God who comes to set people free from their sin. What is his claim? That no man can get under the Father but through me. I'm the only way you can ever get to heaven is by coming to faith in me. That's his claim. But what are we supposed to believe? We're supposed to believe his work. What is his work? The gospel very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Jesus Christ came. He died upon the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead and he said, it is finished. His work is done. He came to do what God sent him to do, which was to seek and to save that which was lost. What do I got to do to be right with God? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the only way to the Father. There is no other name given under heaven to men by which men can be saved. There is no other way. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other way. The answer was simple. The answer was the sweetest answer that any person could ever hear. That you don't work your way to heaven. You trust that God has done it all in Jesus. Bishop John Taylor Smith, who was an honorary chaplain to Queen Victoria and the chaplain general of the British Army during World War II, was, quote, everybody's bishop. Jovial, saintly, a, a favorite at Keswick conferences. Bishop Smith used to ask all the candidates for the chaplaincy one question. Listen carefully. He says, now, as he was interviewing a candidate, he says, now, I want you to show me how you would deal with a man... We'll suppose a, that I am a soldier who has been wounded on the field of battle. I have three minutes to live. And I'm afraid to die because I do not know Christ or the assurances that come. Tell me, how may I be saved and die with the assurance that all will be well with my soul? If the applicant began to beat about the bush and talk about the church and the ordinances and the rituals and the regulations, the good bishop would say, that will not do. I have only three minutes to live. Tell me what I must do to be saved. And as long as Bishop Smith was chaplain general, unless a candidate could answer that question, he could not become a chaplain in the army. What must I do to be saved from the judgment of God and the consequences of sin? Here's the answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he who, what, believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't it sad how the simplicity of that message has been so overshadowed by all the rules, the regulations, and the religions of the world that confuse the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ?
What must I do to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your household, if they believe as well. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all those who were in his house. Now, I want you to notice the genuine evidence of a person whose life is transformed by God. Born again from above. Transformed by God, a work of God and not by man. How do we know that this man's conversion experience or his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ was genuine and eternally life-changing. I want you to notice something. Notice the provisions that he made for Paul and Silas, the genuine love that was poured out. He took them, Paul and Silas, now notice, he took them out of prison that very hour of the night, and notice what he did. He washed their wounds. It says also that he set food before them. He met their needs. Genuine love is expressed to others, especially believers. Jesus said in John 13, By this all men will know that you're my disciples. How? By your love for one another. Think about it. This guy is just about ready to commit suicide. He was his oppressive jailer. And now, as Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, this, life, this guy's life's transformed in a twinkling of an eye. Anyone's born again or becomes a child of God. Man, all things pass away. All things become new. He took these prisoners into his house and he washed their wounds. He demonstrated that he was a new person in Christ. There was evidence of it. It was visible to everybody. 1 John 3 says, If you behold your brother in need and you don't respond to that need, how can you say the love of God dwells in you? This guy demonstrated it. It was awesome. It was beautiful. Think about Zacchaeus. Reparation and restitution are always part and parcel of a born-again person, a person whose lives changed by God. Zacchaeus, hey, if I've cheated anybody, and I know that I have, I'm returning everything to him fourfold. I'm going to make it right. When Linda and I came to faith in Christ, one of the first things that we did, and one of the hardest and most humbling things that we ever did, since we had gotten pregnant outside of marriage, we, had, we, went to our, we felt we had to go to those who were hurt by that, and we asked them for forgiveness. To both sets of parents, we went humbly before them and said that we want to ask your forgiveness for hurting you in the way that all this took place. It was a sign that we were genuinely born again of God. That we were transformed. That we were new creatures. The humility of going and saying, I ask you to forgive me because of the years that I have harmed you. And I was wrong in what I did. Will you forgive me? This man's conversion was genuine, man. He took these guys and he washed them and he fed them. Took them into his own house. And they were baptized immediately. And again, an outward public expression of what had just taken place in their life, publicly identifying themselves with Christ. I am not ashamed to be associated as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ who just set me free. From one moment ago, the man was a suicide. He could have been a suicide victim. And only the love and the generosity and the gracious mercy of God kept him from killing himself and spending an eternity damned from God, away from his presence in the place called hell and all the misery and the agony of there, the, uh, the mercy of God, that the guy didn't kill himself. And it responded to the love of Christ. What must I do to be saved? I'm in such a mess. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know it was real? There was genuine love. He was baptized. There was hospitality. He brought, the, he brought them into their house. He associated with them. He wasn't ashamed to be counted among the believers. He didn't say, okay, now hurry up and get away. He said, you know what? I don't care who knows it. And you know what the sign of genuine conversion always is? There's joy in Mudville. There's just joy in Mudville, man. I mean, there is always joy. When God's in it, there's always joy. There's no way you can get around it. There is always joy. Notice how God turns evil into good. There was persecution. 
And from the persecution came praise. From praise came an opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who were watching them respond in such an extraordinary way to their persecution. From the proclamation of the gospel came provision for salvation to those who believed that was then expressed to them as fellow believers in Christ. And the last thing, and we'll close on this, it's very important, and that is this, that God will always protect His people. So we can always, in every way, praise His name. Verses 35 through 40 will end on this. Now when they came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release these men. This is the next day. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates had sent to release you. Now therefore, come out and go in peace. Notice that he put them back in jail. Cleaned them up, fed them, took care of them. Then he said, well, you know what? You're still a prisoner. I can't let you go. It's not my authority. So would you go back in jail? And what did they say? Okay, no big deal. Hey, what, what, how do you want us again? Now we'll just do it ourselves. God, lock us up. It's all right. Don't worry about it. It's like, wow. So they came to let him go. But Paul said to them, oh, you know what? They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans. What? Remember the big, divi- the, the big division earlier? Hey, they're Jews. Don't listen to them because we're Romans. Oh, guess what they just found out? They never took the time to ask because they didn't care what they had to say. They unjustly beat him. They persecuted him. And now Paul pulls out the ace that he's been holding. That is, if he was playing cards, and we know he didn't play cards. Well, if he did play cards, he didn't gamble. We know that. So, but the reality of all of it is, is that uh, he said, oh, by the way, we're Romans. We're Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison. And now they're sending us away secretly? I like this. They did it in secret. They want us just to go away. But notice he says, "Uh, I don't think so. No, indeed. No, 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 no. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. And and they were afraid when they heard they were Romans. Why? Because they could lose their jobs. Philippi could lose its position as a Roman colony for uh, abusing the Roman laws. These guys were in deep trouble. They came, notice this, they came themselves, they appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. I like this, isn't it great? These people who just the day before were beating them were now begging them. Uh, please, can you just see that? That's a great picture. Take off their clothes and beat them. Bring in the lictors. Beat them up. Drag them away. Next day, how God changes evil into good. We're so, our bad. That's our bad. I'm so sorry. You okay? Can we get anything? Do you need anything? And notice what Paul did. Now, the reason that he did this is that they they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them. Why didn't they slip out secretly? Because they wanted to protect Lydia, the Philippian jailer, his household, and all who had come to faith in Christ. They wanted publicly everyone to know that there was nothing wrong with what the message was that they proclaimed, nor was there anything wrong with the results of the message. And the Philippian church was born. If they had snuck away, there would have been a lot of questions. Hey, well, wait a minute. Weren't you associated with those people who were thrown in jail and we ran them out of town? Oh, all of a sudden now, yeah, you were associated with them and they were unjustly beaten and they were unjustly treated. They were Roman citizens like we are and now we're open to listen to what they have to say and they were encouraged by, by the fact that Paul and Silas said, listen, our God specializes in turning evil into good. That's what he does. How can we do the same? 
If you're persecuted, (coughs) praise God. Praise God. Put your praise in Christ and not your circumstances. If you're persecuted and praising God in the midst of such circumstances, I will guarantee you that you will have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to those who God brings into your life. How do you turn evil into good? When we proclaim the word of God and we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's inevitable that people say, what do I got to do to be right with God? We better know the answer. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He is the only Savior of the world. He is the only name given under heaven by God which men can be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through Him. His work that He completed on the cross is finished. He died for the sins of the world, for those who believe. And He rose again from the dead, conquering death that He can offer eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We make provision for others as God provides for us and we protect those around us by taking a public stand and identifying ourselves as fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we go through this chapter and it's amazing to see that God's work will progress. Despite internal conflict, as we saw with Paul and Barnabas and Silas and all that took place there, God's word still went out. Despite opposition from the outside, the enemy came in, demon-possessed woman, God's word still went out. Despite affliction from within, you know, we see that that all the stuff that took place, all the misery that went on there, you know what, God's work still progressed. And it's important that we realize that every person, from Timothy who had a godly mother and a godly grandmother... To those who had no background whatsoever in Lydia and her household and the Philippian jailer who were Gentiles with no understanding of God. Every person that has come to faith in Christ has come to faith in Christ the same way. And that is by the grace and the mercy of God. They believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and they were saved. And their lives were never the same again. They walked in newness of life. I keep going back to the words of Paul to the Romans when he said this and we close on this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Men and women, are you ashamed of the gospel? Don't be. It is the dynamite of God to chip away and blow up a hard heart of those who are seeking God. See, for those who seek Him, they'll never be disappointed. Are you seeking Him today? Then you'll find Him because He's not far from you. Father, we just thank You and we praise You for this just a wonderful uh, picture of how You continually turn evil into good. God, we just pray that we would be people who, as we're persecuted in this lifetime for standing upon your truths and principles, that we would praise you, not in the circumstances, but we would praise you in Christ because you're a God who specializes in turning such events into that which is positive towards your kingdom and plan. God, may we, as we praise you in the midst of such circumstances and as people are drawn to us because of the joy in our life and the peace and the contentment and the hope that we have, that we will be bold in the proclamation of the word of God, the truth, that they can be saved by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of their sin. God, and as those of us who are born again or born from above, may we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. May old things pass away and all things become new. If we've adopted the ways of the world in any area that I mentioned even today, 
when we think about drunkenness and sexual immorality and drug abuse and gambling and, and pornography and all that the world causes many to fall into, that we would repent, we would turn from that, we would ask you to forgive us and that we would walk in a way that's pleasing to you so that we can be a testimony, a light into the world around us. God, we just thank you and we praise you that the gospel is transforming, that it is the power of God for those who believe. And we just pray that now in Christ's name. Amen.